Since Ignite Medical Resorts came onto the post-acute care scene in 2017, the central focus has been to do one thing really well. CEO Tim Fields' goal is to be the best short-term rehab provider in the market. But that doesn't mean Ignite has rested on its laurels. Park Ridge, Illinois-based Ignite has experienced notable growth, most recently with its interest into the state of Texas as the operator of four skilled nursing facilities acquired by Real Estate Investment Trust, LTC Properties, in a $52 million deal. Fields said this deal in particular fits well with Ignite's vision as the facilities are located in four major metro areas near large hospitals. It also aligns with what Fields sees as the future of skilled nursing, which centers around reimbursement and how SNFs can provide value through quality and outcomes, how to become closer with managed care organizations and better partners with the acute care world. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our in-person Rethink Conference happening on September 1st in Chicago. Hosted by Skilled Nursing News, Rethink is the premier skilled nursing event dedicated to trends, challenges, and the future of the industry. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on the conference and our other scheduled events. Alrighty, thanks so much, Tim, for joining us today. Of course, thanks for having me. Let's get started. Through Ignite Medical Resorts, you and your executive team have developed a model with short-term rehab resorts, effectively turning the traditional post-acute care experience on its head. Could you tell us a little bit more about that model and how you see Ignite impacting skilled care in the future? Sure. You know, I think from the get-go, you know, we wanted to try to do something a little bit different and also try to stick to one thing. So for us, you know, the core of our of our business has been to try to find markets across the country. We've been really focused on the Midwest, uh, pretty much right up and down the country, or I would say the central time zone because now we're in Texas and Texas is not the Midwest. They'll tell you that themselves. In an area where we're close to, we can have somewhat of a, a regional and divisional presence, but looking for markets where our model is going to fit, which is, you know, we usually are in uh, major metro markets uh, by large hospitals uh, where we can get the right staff and, and the types of patients that we're trying to go after. I think for us, the, the one thing, you know, doing one thing and doing it well for us was really about a focus on short-term rehab. I think, you know, traditionally, a lot of operators try to do everything, long-term care, Alzheimer's care short-term care, assisted living, independent living, home health, ancillary business, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for us, it was, this is a, a tough business. And, you know, if you're swimming upstream and trying to be unique and different and really plug yourself into uh, the hospitals and physicians and the managed care companies, we wanted to, uh, to, to have a sole focus and, and really, you know, help, you know, our teams, you know, understand what, what we wanted to do. You know, I think impact on, on the future you know, for us, I think that we are seeing a lot of stuff that's continuing to come forward as, as healthcare continues to evolve and as post-acute continues to evolve. Medicare Advantage continues to grow in almost all the markets that we're in. National statistics show that it is growing across the country. And, and we've got to continue to get better at those partnerships uh, and those relationships because that's, you know, I think a big part of the future over the next three, five, seven years is uh, you know, those, those numbers are increasing. You don't see commercials late at night uh, with Johnny, Joe jo Namath, I'm sorry for, uh, you know, hey, keep your Medicare benefits, right? It's all about how do we uh, how do we get you into a different Medicare Advantage plan? And so I, I think the future is going to be a lot about reimbursement and how we can add value through quality and outcomes, how we can get closer to our managed care organizations, how we can partner better with our hospitals, and how we can continue to, to be replacements to higher cost settings like acute rehab and LTAC. Uh, there's many patients in, in our markets today and many markets across the country that our industry can provide the same level of quality care at, at a cheaper cost. And so, you know, Medicare Advantage is starting to get on board in certain areas. 
uh, where they're not approving uh, LTAC and IRS stays for uh, certain types of patients. Uh, it's becoming very specialized. There's still a you know a, a small need for it out there, but I think there's a lot of acute rehab beds in a lot of markets. There's a lot of LTAC beds in a lot of markets, and I think our setting can step up and meet that need of a higher acuity patient. Our types of uh, patients that we maybe were taking care of five to seven years ago, knee replacements, hip replacements, you know, more ortho focus uh, is is being served in home care now and uh, in home health. And I and I think for us, we need to continue to swim upstream to higher acuity patients, being part of the continuum where we can fit in. Our cost structure is going to be higher than home health care, but it's cheaper than acute rehab and LTAC. And if we can be a part of the solution of helping to manage, you know, chronic disease, higher cost patients, plugging in to really manage total cost of care and and rehospitalizations, we can be part of the solution as healthcare continues to evolve uh, across the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of really good stuff there. I'm excited to dig into it. You talked a little bit about hospitals, and I'm just kind of curious, how has Ignite worked to become a quality referral partner for hospitals? And, and how do you think the relationship between SNFs and acute care settings have evolved over COVID? Well, I think it's uh, important to first start with healthcare is local. So there is no uh, cookie cutter approach or no one, one size fits all. Uh, so you have to really understand your markets. You have to really understand your hospitals and you have to really understand their goals. Um, and that's through conversations and relationships to build. You know, Some of our hospitals that are for-profit are all concerned about their length of stay days on, on the inpatient side and how do I get patients out quickly? And how do I, you know, be the fastest and easiest to work with? Uh, some of ours are in, you know, advanced care models like bundled payments and ACOs. And it's about the value and, and the outcomes in terms of how we're managed clinically and financially with them. Some of our, our hospital partners are academic medical centers. And, and it's the types of patients that they're getting, whether it be oncology or wound care, that we're, we're a part of that solution. I think that, that you have to really understand what it's going to take. What does success look like in that relationship but with your hospital or physician partners? And how do you plug in and, 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 and tweak your operation you know, to that? We, you know, we've prided ourselves across, you know, there's, there's no drastic difference in the country than operating in Oklahoma and Chicago, right? And so we pride ourselves on trying to allow our, you know, our teams to really have some flexibility to, to, to understand that you know, in certain markets I can use, you know, I can staff differently. I can use more med techs than nurses or more RNs and LPNs or more uh, mid-shift nurses for, for, for late-night admissions. And so... We really want to craft how we do in our strategy, you know, specific locally to that market. And, and I think we can plug in with those hospitals. You know, I think, you know, COVID has continued to make that, I think, a bigger priority. I think we got closer to our hospitals during COVID. We were part of, of a resource to them. We, we understood that, you know, hey, they had patients lining up outside their emergency rooms and their hospital throughput was, was, was going through. And there's not a need for patients with COVID to be in an acute setting just because they have COVID. You know, we early on pivoted to opening COVID recovery centers because that's what our hospitals needed. So whether you have pneumonia or you have a broken hip or you have whatever you may, may have, we're in the business of trying to make sure that we're going to be able to, you know, be a resource for you, right? Whether, you know, whatever that diagnosis is, we want to be your, your good downstream partner. I think additionally, you know, a lot of our hospitals take risk. Um, we want to wrap by their side. We've been banging on their doors to try to be alongside of them uh, in that risk sharing both on the upside and downside risk. But we want to be a clinical and financial partner with them. A lot of our uh, hospitals are, are really, you know, stepping up to be amazing resources for us, both during COVID and after COVID, to providing amazing physician support and nurse practitioner support, uh, education, helping us build clinical programs for managing chronic disease, you know, understanding that he's here, these are the types of patients I have that we need that you are setting to take care of, advanced respiratory, you know, wound care, types of patients that we can help you build clinical programs and I think just, you know, COVID just made us working closer together. And, and I think, you know, our, our goal is to continue that process 
I continue to be to be aligned right right by them. I was going to say, it sounds like you guys have really developed quite a, a partnership with your hospitals and being able to figure out the kind of care that they need and what you can do to to help provide that. You mentioned the the Texas deal recently. Uh, you know, obviously, just over a month ago, Ignite entered the state of Texas for the first time as the operator of four skilled nursing facilities acquired by Real Estate Investment Trust (LTC) properties in a fifty-two million dollar deal. How did this deal come about, and what, in your mind, made it a good next step for Ignite? Well, I think we've um, we've, we've loved to, to get to know our Texas teams. We have some great, amazing staff and amazing leaders down there that we've really gotten to know over the last six weeks. And we're super excited to be uh, to be in the state of Texas. We've got a couple opportunities for some growth down there, and, and we're uh, we're just really excited to to get to know uh, a new state. I think for us, again, whether it's Texas or Missouri or Wisconsin, Illinois, I think we're we're always looking to be by major metro markets, by large hospitals. This deal was very attractive to us because it's four major metro markets inside of Texas: you know, San Antonio, Houston, Austin, and the Dallas Fort Worth area. And they're all three to four new new buildings, and so it fit our our model. We could walk in day one and, with very little besides some carpet cleaning and light bulb changes, you know, make these buildings really shine, clean and pristine, and into the concept of a medical resort and what we're trying to do. We didn't need to do a bunch of capex and a whole bunch of renovation, a bunch of stuff. So they're very attractive to us within that. It's also a hybrid deal for us. We've got you know a lot of creative solutions here on earnouts and refinancing and. Purchase options. Uh, it extends our relationship with LTC Properties, who's continued to be creative with us and find flexible and creative solutions so that we can mutually grow. And so I think you know, as as we've also come out of COVID pandemic, it's all all about how we creatively look at our certain deals and and what makes sense. And we're still we're still very bullish on building new facilities. We've got a facility we're hoping to get in the ground here in St. Louis this summer for uh, for breaking ground. But construction has been more difficult with uh, some of the pandemic and some of the inflationary costs and uh, cost of lumber and, and cost of the trades. And so um, we have pivoted a little bit more to some acquisition stuff. And, and this is a good deal for us, both financially. Uh, I think it's also a good deal for us as it extends our, our reach. We're already in Oklahoma, so we continue to go south. And, uh, and we've been very excited to work with our Texas teams. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds it definitely sounds like a the right deal at the right time for you guys. And sounds like you're still looking to do a mixture of building and then obviously acquiring as well. Exactly. And so, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up staffing. You know, staffing continues to arguably be the biggest challenge for skilled nursing operators. We had your colleague and chief culture officer, Jim White, join us at our clinical executive conference where he discussed some of the innovative ways Ignite is trying to recruit and retain staff. I was hoping you, you can just dive a little deeper into some of those initiatives and the impact that they've had. Yeah, as I, I'm sure Jim spoke at your conference, you know, we as a company has have continued to have a relentless focus on our culture. And this was before the pandemic and during the pandemic and, and today. I think try to be the best operator, you know, clinically, customer service-wise, you have to have the best staff. So everything we do is about getting the best staff. And, and Jim's done an amazing job at spearheading that initiative for our organization. You know, staffing was hard before the pandemic. It's been hard now. And, and for us, you know, we, our model doesn't work without it. Uh, our true north has always been how do we you know get the best staff on the floor every day. Um, we've developed a lot of in- innovative things that we think have continued to work. Again, being very creative. Healthcare is also local for a, for an employee market, so you have to understand your employees. You have to understand you know what's going on. You have to understand you know how to recruit and retain the best based upon you know that specific employee market. So we've done you know customized wage grids. We've done advanced reward and recognition programs. We have a program called Superhero and Scrubs, which allows you to earn 
uh, everything from you know gift cards and bonuses, uh, PTO payout, and even raises through the more hours you work without you know no call no shows, disciplinary action, etc. We have a Avengers Advantage, which is a perfect attendance award uh, for our staff. We give out you know free DoorDash passes and free Planet Fitness memberships, uh, all to just continue to have great you know benefits. But in reality, it's been about how do we establish that culture. At the end of the day, you know we're, we're never going to be able to chase around people who want to go work you know, for agency rates or people who want to go work on these traveling nurse programs. You know, for us, it's all about good staff usually want to be home in, in a place that they feel, you know, appreciated. Uh, they feel, you know, like they come to work and they, they make a difference. Uh, and so for us, that's really been about establishing our culture. We took, you know, the traditional kind of HR director out of the facility many years ago and, and put in a director of culture and engagement. And the reality of that is that's a person who's more like an employee marketer. It's, it's the same way on your sales and marketing side where you've got to get somebody that goes off at, you know, to the hospitals and the community and meets with potential referrals and families and patients and try to convince them why you know, our facility is the best to admit to. We took that same approach in, in our employee side. And how do we hire the right type of director of culture and engagement, which honestly usually is somebody not with an HR background, to be able to go out and recruit and retain and establish that fun culture and do fun things in the facility so that we are establishing uh, you know, a unique and different place to work. I think if you follow our social media and follow what we do, everything all day long is about uh, our employees. Uh, this week is Nurses Week, and we've spent a ton of time, money, and energy on that to make sure our nurses feel appreciated, they feel valued, they feel like they work in a place that, that, that is making a difference uh, and is unique. Um, we've also started uh, our own 501c3 foundation called Ignite the Way. Um, it really started during COVID, where it started with, you know, hey, how do I, how do I take care of uh, Susie's family or Betsy's family when they had an incident happen? And we've had staff that their spouses were laid off because they worked in an industry during COVID that had an issue. We've had issues with, you know, people who have had catastrophic events or fires at their house or their loved one got in a motorcycle accident, etc. And Ignite the Way has been there to allow our company to to provide for those employees in their time of need. We allow our, our employees to do payroll deductions, so uh, it can be you know funded by employees and, and kind of employees taking care of employees. And so you know while we're certainly not perfect, and we go through our own you know staffing, and it's a focus every single day, uh, and we work at it every single day. I think that that what we've tried to do on establishing our culture and really driving recruitment retention has allowed us to you know use very very little agency and have better turnover than I think most of the industry. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great, and. I do, uh, I do understand that you guys did start your own staffing agency. How has that helped and what does that look like? Yeah, so we started Lux Staffing uh, in our Kansas City and Oklahoma City markets. Um, so for seven of our buildings to help really during COVID, you know, it was tough when you had, you know, issues where, you know, on a testing cycle, we'd get, you know, five, 10, 15 staff members knocked out with COVID. And we were having to call external agencies and deal with the game of playing crisis rates and getting just awful staff at horrendous pricing and it, it affected us clinically, it affected us financially. And so again, we pivoted very quickly to saying this isn't going to work for us and we need to do something different. And so we use the concepts on how we do training orientation and we did our own staffing agency. So we only we only staff ourselves. It's a very similar orientation and training program as our Ignite staff. Uh, we also allow our buildings to hire our agency staff. Actually we encourage it. Uh, so sometimes we pick off agency staff and hire them from, from other agencies, obviously. Then they come in our buildings and like our culture and like our teamwork, and then they stay as a full-time employee. And so it's, it's been a way for us to try to, again, deal with an issue. We've gone through you know three huge COVID waves. Um, who knows if another one's coming? We're starting to see a little bit of a, 
of a pickup in some of our markets. But you know, that's that's kind of the point of what we did with Lux Staffing. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, now switching gears a little bit here, uh, this is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has proposed its payment rate update to nursing home reimbursements for the next fiscal year, which includes a 4.6% cut related to the patient-driven payment model. How do you anticipate this potential cut might impact Ignite and the industry as a whole? Well, it sucks. Let's start there. (laughs) I'm not sure the logic looking at our industry nationally and saying, hey, let's try to cut reimbursement. You know, the government's been helping us with stimulus and grant money for a reason. COVID drove up our nursing supply costs. Our staffing costs have gone through the roof. uh, And inflation has caused every category of expense to rise, whether it be food, utilities, or anything else that we buy. So, you know, to cut reimbursement while we have significant rising expenses just seems a little tone deaf. I do think that, you know, obviously reimbursement needs some form of, of modification. You know, I'd like to see it tweaked more towards paper performance. You know, even PDPM, while it reimburses for acuity, doesn't take into effect quality. Uh, you know, if you have better staff and better technology and take better care for the patient, why not argue that you should get paid more than the people that don't? So, you know, to me, it fundamentally doesn't make sense that a one-star building that's 40 years old and has all semi-private rooms keeps patients for 60 to 90 days and has a 40% rehospitalization rate, gets paid the exact same amount as a beautiful new building that has all private rooms, has a low length to stay, re- good rehospitalization rates good customer service scores, right? It's, it's They get paid the same. So, you know, you're better in quality, but you get the exact same reimbursement. It doesn't work like that in any other industry, right? I mean, you know, usually quality and payment are usually aligned. And I, I'd love to see, you know, the government figure out how to do that because I do think that incentivizing, you know, quality is, is really where I think, you know, the payment reform should be. Um, you know, CMS just gave the managed care organizations, the Medicare Advantage plans, an 8% increase and us, a, you know, proposed 4.6% cut. I'm not sure how it incentivizes quality care at the bedside to continue to put more money in the hands of the insurance companies and less in the hands of the operators. But again, I believe in, you know, we should be incentivizing quality, hanging a carrot out there to let operators chase it from a quality perspective, and everyone wins, most importantly, the patient. Yeah, I, you know, you lead me well into another question about PDPM. How has Ignite contended with PDPM overall now that it has been in effect for almost three years now, come October? You know, PDPM was a step forward for us as it aligned patient diagnosis and clinical acuity and not just about driving therapy minutes. You know, we as an industry, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with the acuity boundaries, we continue to take multi-comorbid patients who are with us for a reason, right? They can't go home. And the higher acuity and the more resources that we need, whether it be nursing care, therapy services, respiratory therapy, more dietary for patients who are on, you know, modified diets, you know, the more, the more re- reimbursement that goes with that. So I think it was a good step forward, you know, for us. I, I think the problem has existed as the government viewed this as budget neutrality. And I think two major things occurred. Number one, I think there was a severe underestimate of the acuity level that's in skilled nursing facilities today as it was maybe two, three, four, seven years ago. I think we're getting more and more acute each year. And I think, as again, the, the, the spectrum shifts to lower acuity patients going with home health and our setting get, getting more, especially on the Medicare Advantage side of patients who might have made criteria for LTAC or acute rehab, we continue just to see an increase in acuity. I also think BDPM was rolled out at the very end of 19, and six months later, a global pandemic struck. Um, and I don't think it's very fair to judge any system when you have a global pandemic that's upset the apple cart, right? We've had millions of people acquire COVID in the facilities. 
both admitted to SNFs, right, from the hospitals or getting acquired COVID in the facility. They've had to utilize Medicare benefits under that, you know, skilled stay. You know, we got COVID isolation rates for that because obviously that reimbursement was higher due to, you know, having to use specialized staffing and separate units and more PPE costs. So I, I don't think it's fair to use an apples to apples comparison uh, of that. And so, you know, again, I think PDPM was a step in the right direction. But as I just talked about, I think, you know, getting to paper performance and getting where quality affects your reimbursement, I think is really the key to aligning everything, both from the government side, from the operator side, and from the patient side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, obviously, you said that PDPM was a step in the right direction. Could you talk a little bit about some of the opportunities that PDPM has presented? I mean, I think just the opportunities for us have been that, that that we've seen, you know, our model already before PDPM even came out was about trying to, you know, do a little bit different of a model, high acuity, and uh, and really step up to whether it be bariatrics or dialysis or complex respiratory or, uh, or wound care or a combination of all of those. <laughs> and I think that, you know, PDPM did provide some, some pathway to saying, okay, hey, if, if you're going to take these higher acuity patients that have all these multiple comorbidities, you know, and, and that it's going to have some reimbursement stacked behind it. And so it's not just about driving, you know, patients that are, that are needing therapy. It's about patients that also need complex nursing care. Um, and so again, you know, we're a skilled nursing and rehabilitation facility and patients can have a lot of times both, but sometimes only nursing. And, you know, under the prior system, those patients almost had to go to LTAC security as because they weren't reimbursed properly in, in our setting. Now, aside from staffing, what are some of the biggest challenges that you think Ignite faces currently? Well, I think from a 30,000-foot level, I think we, you know, as an industry, are uh, the two big have been, you know, regulatory and reimbursement. Um, you know, as I said earlier, on the reimbursement side, you know, there's a, a big change for, for that. But on, on the regulatory side, you know, I, I, I was just at a conference with you, Jordan, and, uh, in San Diego where we heard uh, former, you know, CMS director Seema Verma speak. And, and I, I was really, you know, I was really pleased to hear her kind of give the, the set of, you know, hey, what if we had an, a world, right, where our regulatory body was educational and a help and not punitive? And, you know, our hospitals have JACO and they have a very conversational and coordinated program to improve quality and care. When JACO walks into the building, it's like, oh, thanks, you're here. Let's get together. Let's figure out how to work this together. And I think when state walks in any of our buildings, it's usually, oh, my God, you know, we go into defense mode. Because it's usually about how do we sit and write tags. Now, we have some amazing states that do this very well. And we have great partnerships with. Uh, and unfortunately, we have some states who have just, you know, chosen to be punitive in their measures. But I, I think, you know, on the regulatory side, you know, I think there's a, there's a big challenge on how do we continue to align, you know, what our, what, our, what our regulatory body is doing to help and support our industry. You know, we had some state agencies during COVID that walked in and said, let me help you understand this guidance and let me help you you know, with what that, and we had one that just wanted to come in and, you know, again, write tags. Um, so I think using that, guys, I think regulatory-wise, as the, the, the President's administration talks about putting more surveyors and more things out there, I, I think it should be more about how do we be a resource and a help and not, you know, how do we be a hammer? Because more hammering is just going to lead to more issues. That's not what the best benefit of the patient is. You know, I think a, a reimbursement on all levels, I think, is a concern. I think, you know, we've, we have to move to some level of paper performance. We've also had to work closer with our managed care organizations and take risk. Our clinical and financial metrics should matter. I think we should continue to define and, and really narrow our defined narrow networks, uh, our preferred networks in, in, in our hospital markets and also our managed care markets. I've told many of my managed care providers, I'm not sure why you're contracted with 
10, 15 facilities in the area, you should be contracted with two or three and really work with them and be a partner with them and help them with clinical education and help them with program programs and help them understand, you know, that we're trying to get to a certain goal. We're aligned together, you know, throughout this. Um, I, I think we should also not have the flexibility of a one size fits all, you know, reimbursement model like Medicare has done or like some of the managed cares do with, with leveled contracts. I think we've got to get very creative in how, you know, our future reimbursement is going to, uh, going to be. But we've had some great managed care minds. I think we're beating their doors down all the time, trying to have creative discussions. We've got some very smart partners on the managed care side that I think we're excited to hopefully in the next year or two develop some really creative contracting models that are well aligned on both sides. Uh, I think, you know, again, COVID put that on pause for a while. So we're really excited to get that done. And I, and I think finally, you know, we've got an amazing group at, at American Healthcare and ACA led by Mark Parkinson that advocate on our behalf you know, all the time. We've got amazing groups like the Ambassador Group led by J.J. Rabinowitz that's done wonders to help us get in front of elected officials to tell our story. Most of our politicians that we've visited with, we've done site tours, we brought them out to our buildings, you know, showed them around. They don't really understand what we do. And I think it's eye-opening to them when they walk around going, wow, you're taking care of all these patients during COVID that the hospitals couldn't take care of. And healthcare is not just at a hospital level. We have tons of community-based partners that are a part of the solution and are going through issues with reimbursement and regulatory and staffing and everything else. And I, I think, you know, having a voice and an advocacy to help us with changing the system that we get better care at the bedside is really a key. And again, I think this has been just headlined, you know, lately by a lot of the stuff that's coming through with all the money that was flowing into our sector with the stimulus payments and and trying to improve, you know, Medicaid reimbursement and some of the PDPM stuff. It just we have to be working together, and I, I just applaud ACA and the Ambassadors Group for really helping us, you know, tell our story to our elected officials because we need resources to help us continue to get better. We need reimbursement resources, and we need an unshackling a regulatory burden to help us execute it every day. And so, you know, you, you've said many times, and you said this at the beginning of our conversation, that the goal of Ignite is to do one thing really well. Um, and, you know, after a few years in the business, do you ever see Ignite evolving into something outside of short-term rehab? Why or why not? You know, I think right now we're, we're trying to stick in our lane. It's not easy to do what we're doing every day. And our teams work their butts off every day to try to be the best at what we can do of running a high energy model and tons of admissions and discharges every day and lots of clinical acuity. And it, it takes a lot of focus and energy on that. And we don't want to distract our executive teams and our facility-based teams with that. You know, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, talks about the hedgehog concept which is, you know, three things that intersect, right? What you're passionate about, what you're really good at, and what you understand you can control economically. And I think for us, our, our, our hedgehog concept has been, how do we get the best staff and have the best culture? How do we provide the best quality care clinically and therapy? And how do we run a high census to be number one emitter in the market to pay for all of it? And if we do those things, you know, this is a complex business, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be done every day. But if we do those three things well and have great staff and take great care of patients and and run a high census to pay for all of it, I think we'll do really well. There's some innovative models, I think, that are coming out. You know, at the conference, again, Jordan, we, we heard about Sniff at Home. You know, it's always intriguing to me because I think that I see it more as a complement to what we're doing than a competitor of what we're doing. You know, I think, you know, maybe at some point we move into that space to extend our model into the home a little bit more. But I really feel that's our way to help with some of our managed care organizations, you know, get better throughput in our setting get patients out of the hospital quicker, get them to us, get them through, through us into the home, get them from home. And so you can shrink that entire episode through having more high acuity level care at both the skilled nursing setting and at the home setting. 
so I, I think it could be a great compliment to us. It's still, you know, on the bleeding edge. And so we'll see where that goes. But other than that, we're going to try to continue to do what, we, what we, we try to do really well every day, which is, which is be the best in the communities that we serve, you know, both clinically to our patients and culturally to our employees. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.